My energy is through the roof right now, and we are recording another episode of the Learn Lead Podcast. Landon, Archangelo, here with me. What's up, my friend? What's up, baby? How we doing? Great, man. Coming off a very exciting last couple weeks, a lot going on. Yesterday, we had one of the biggest snowstorms I've actually ever been a part of up here in Long Island. I don't know. Did you guys get crushed with snow, too, or? Uh, uh, in Delaware, no. And then in Pennsylvania, yes. Like the Philly area got, got hit pretty hard, but out where I'm at, just a bunch of ice, bunch of ice and over top of four inches of snow. So nothing too crazy. Yeah. We got about like a foot and a half of just nonstop powder. It's actually still coming down right now as we speak. Um, it's pretty, pretty cool though. Cause I, I mean, I have a truck. I got the leases up next week. So I'm really, uh, really grateful. I was able to keep that truck four wheel drive for the next week. <laughs> People are slipping and sliding everywhere, but um, you know, what's the story? What's the story about when you when you have a car lease getting the miles rolled back? Like, what, how's that work done? Oof! Am I allowed to talk about this? You know, it's not <laughs> not the most legal thing. Is the guy uh, you're going to return it to listen to this podcast? No, he's not. So, I mean, basically, what I do when I go for a lease, right? I get the lowest mileage package um, because it costs the least in the monthly amount, and then I have a guy that goes into the computer and he rolls them back, right? And so my cheap ass. I actually don't get an inspection or an oil change before I roll it back. So I, be, I do my oil changes privately. I've actually been driving my car without an inspection for like the last two years. I don't I don't recommend anyone does that, but I'm about 40,000 miles over my over my lease mileage uh, limit. But uh, I'm actually a thousand under if you just looked at the, the speedometer. So sounds pretty cost effective to me. <laughs> yeah, we're taking the gamble. <laughs> Dude, outside of the snow and and your your car and you get you're gonna are you gonna re up or are you gonna get a new a new car? Um, my sister's in college for the next uh, five six months, so I'm gonna take her Pathfinder, and that's gonna cost me like two hundred dollars a month, nothing. I'll keep that for a little bit, and then I'm I'm not sure where to go. You know, one of my clients is a a uh, high up in the Lexus dealership. I know you I know you were thinking about a Lexus. Might go with that. Uh, I was honestly thinking about a Kia to be honest. Some something's telling me I want a Kia. I'm really just focused on keeping my expenses super low because a car right now at a young age is not the greatest investment. But at the same time, I do value having a uh, a nice little car. I feel you, man. I feel you. I didn't mean to take you down that the car conversation. I just thought no, it was you're funny. Good, man. I figured, uh, on the topic, I figured, yeah, go ahead. On the topic of gambling, actually, I want I want to talk about two things. This actually, this episode is going to air. We're recording this before the Super Bowl, but it's going to air after the Super Bowl. Who you got, bro? You can't bet against Brady, man. I said it last week. I said it the week before. I mean, I, I don't care. I, I'm not betting against Brady, man. Can't do it. I, I agree. I agree. If anyone's involved in uh, if, understands how Vegas and the lines works, the line actually says they, uh, Brady's got a shot here. You know, everyone's going to be uh, taking KC a lot. I'm going with Brady Moneyline. Going with Brady Moneyline. Hey, I, I'm not going to pretend to be a sports expert. I just know that. You know, you got a guy who has been to a lot of Super Bowls. He's lost some Super Bowls, but he's won more than he's lost. And obviously, Mahomes is a stud. He's been there before and won him before. So, I don't know. It's going to be a good game. So, I'm excited to see. But I, I really want Brady to win because I want I want everybody to stop the whole was was it Brady or was it Belichick? You know that whole conversation. You know? I think this season. I think this season already said it all. On the same conversation of gambling, this is something that we definitely had to talk about. GameStop, man. GameStop. Holy shit, GameStop. Fucking shock the world, man. This you this go, you, uh, go, you go first. Yeah, you go first. I, I know it strikes a, a personal chord with both of us because we are in the the financial planning space. I know Landon's not too happy about it. We kind of went back and forth via text message about it. And uh 
I think you're just being a little bitch, to be honest. Excuse my language. But at the same time, you know, there's a lot of crazy stuff going on. Um, you know, GameStop, for anyone that doesn't know, I mean, if you're listening to this this podcast, you're clearly, you know, have the entrepreneurial spirit. You know what happened with GameStop. A lot of hedge funds are shorting it, rightfully so, because GameStop is going to go out of business sooner than later. They're not a great company anymore. That nostalgic feeling that of going to GameStop was awesome. But now with the coronavirus and everything going digital, it doesn't make sense for GameStop brings no value. They have no position in the marketplace anymore, which I agree. I think uh, a position to bet against them is the right thing to do. But at the same time, I don't agree with allowing big time institutions with billions of dollars to bet against a company and then talk poorly about it to shift the market at it, which is a very, very common theme in these um it, with with all these hedge funds and it's not really regulated too much. The SEC just sits on their ass until something happens and then they have to make regulations, as we saw in 2008. Um, so it, it was really cool to see people rally in a nonpartisan way, whether you, you're Democrat or Republican, because that was the whole conversation for so long now. Now you see everyone, even people in Congress, Republicans and Democrats coming together and saying like, this is ridiculous what you know these trading platforms are doing, halting the trading on being able to buy some of these stocks, you know, uh, GameStop, AMC, the people were able to drive the price up because uh, in layman's terms, the shorts expired very soon. And basically, if they weren't hitting that that same price, the companies had to buy the stock back at a higher price, which theoretically could drive the price to infinity, which you saw with GameStop went from $3 to $350. A lot of people made a lot of money and the hedge funds lost a lot of money. Um, but I digress. I think it's pretty cool seeing people come collectively while at the same time, I believe that it shouldn't be allowed in terms of, I believe that's some bit of collusion. You know, we're just driving a a stock price up for no reason. It's not a good company. It's not investing. We're not actually investing. It's a total gamble. So be smart if you got into it. I hope you made money, but it's not investing and uh, you should definitely reach out to someone to uh, get that, get that game plan going. Yeah. I don't know, man. I, I don't, want to sound like a contrarian or like against it all i just think it, too much of that of this kind of stuff if it becomes a trend right like there's going to be a handful of people that have made money in this thing and they're gonna they're gonna get a youtube account they're gonna start you know their own fund and they're gonna just basically specialize in looking for these type of companies to just jack up that's what i'm that's what i'm predicting and and again none of the, nothing that we're saying on this podcast is investment advice none of it is related to what we do in our careers so I just have to make sure that's disclosed um dealing with some compliance problems in the past but <laughs> um but honestly I, you know it's it's I, I think it's it, there's problems on both sides of the coin right because regardless of who's doing what with the security on a on a on an institutional level on an institutional investor level whether it's hedge funds or the private equity worlds or you know any any big wealth money manager like you know these people are are working with with other people's money that involves people's retirements that involves you know big lump sums of cash and money that that other human beings are giving them for for hopeful you know obviously gains over time for whatever use that is so i i just think like if we look at it from this standpoint and go okay well if at any single point somebody can hop on a blog and get a following and run something up, that that creates a lot of inefficiency. That creates a lot of uncertainty in the marketplace, which I think long term, big picture, could impact us if there's not the proper, you know, legislation or the proper um, guardrails set up. But at the same time, what's scary about it is the idea of of the government halting 
people the freedom to to buy and sell in a free marketplace. That's the other side. So there's no like right or wrong answer. I don't think. Besides, like it's it's scary and dangerous to, to the idea of people illogically just jacking a stock price up just to screw over another institution. A, a side note, not to go down on a tangent, but a side note that's important to everyone to remember. Your Robin Hoods and all these free trading platforms. I, I always Tony's heard me say this fifty times by now, but there's no such thing as a free lunch. There's no such thing as a free lunch. Why do you think Robinhood's willing to give everybody these free trading platforms? They call it free because there's no commissions involved in the trading. Nothing's wrong with that. That's that is true. But they have to get paid somehow. So that they're, they're how they're getting paid is big institutional investors, massive firms with a lot of capital are paying them a lot of money to have data on you guys, on us. I have a Robinhood account, or I had one. I don't anymore. I had to. I had to get rid of that. But the the whole point is they're paying Robinhood. These big big money institutional investors are paying the Robinhoods of the world and all these free trading platforms for data and information on us and how we trade as retail investors. So it's a it's a it's a game that's not set up for your average Joe to win long term. There may be some wins in the short term, but it's important to remember that the guys and, and gals that are playing this game at a high level do this for a living and have a lot of money to do it with. So I I don't know. I'm sure half of this will be cut out of the podcast, but I'm sure some of it'll stay and hopefully no, some I, of it helps. Dude, you know? I think I think this are some great points, man. I wanna I mean it was a great answer. A little PC for my liking, to be honest. But <laughs> I uh <laughs> You know, I do believe that, you know, the, the big problem here is that people got in on this and it, it's kind of fun. You know, it was great to be a part of the revolution. I took part of it. I was excited about it. I made a, a very small sum of money, but it was more so about just being a part of a, a movement. And that was cool. But like I said, it's not investing. You're not actually doing anything besides going on Reddit or Twitter and looking at somebody, what they're saying, and then just buying it. Investing right. is buying companies for the long term, buying companies that have assets that are backed by good things, good financials. Now, I don't want to dive too into weeds because we have an amazing guest to tee up. Do you have anything to say before we do uh, before we do that? I just think there's a, like you mentioned, like investing, there's a difference between investing and trading. And Huge difference. And our, our world, the last three or four years specifically, as smartphones have continued to evolve and, 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 and these trading platforms are starting to to emerge. There's this sense of, you know, trading and investing is gamified now, where where you could be walking through a Walgreens and buy stocks and sell stocks and buy and share buy and sell equities and own equities and watch them grow and do all these things on your own. But the reality comes down to it is the the ones that that win at this game are people that do it for a living, and the people that even do it for a living don't always win at this game. For every every time you go and buy something, somebody's selling it for a reason. Every time you go to sell something, you're selling it for a reason. What's the difference? You know what I mean? So I you know, it's uh, yeah, we could go on and on about this and do a whole podcast on this and I'm like I said, I'm sure some of the stuff will be cut out, some of it'll be kept in. I just think it's it's tough and there's not one answer, there's not one right or wrong answer. I think there needs to be reform a little bit on both sides of the coin. Um yeah, that uh, yeah, it's just tough. I mean, it, it, the idea, and, and I don't want to defend hedge funds or defend big institutional investors. It's just imagine Blockbuster, right? Blockbuster was a failing company. When they go out of business tone, like, are they, are they still have a store somewhere? They actually, have one store in Oregon. <laughs> right, right. One but, store, I think, in Bend, Oregon. The idea that looking at a failing company or a company that's going under 
and making a prediction based on their numbers and based on logic. The idea that that logic no longer has meaning is scary. The idea that just any at any given day, somebody could manipulate the market and do whatever is scary. However, it's, it's, it's hypocritical to act like that the big money and the hedge funds don't do the same thing. So I, it's, it's kind of tough. I, I don't have really much of a, a, an aggressive opinion either, either way. It's just, it's, it's interesting times and it'll be interesting to see how things pan out. Yeah. But on the contrary though, in, in a situation like GameStop, right? The, the chairman, the new chairman of the board just invested, I think he was the, uh, the founder of Chewy. Um, he invested like a billion dollars into GameStop to try and reform it, bring it to an online platform, you know, uh, try and revamp the business model. They should have the ability in a free market to do that. They should they should have the ability to pivot and try and, you know, revamp GameStop to try and revive the whole thing. But I digress. I know we went to the rabbit hole. It was definitely imperative we touched on it because it was the whether you were in the stock market or not, some random person, you, you knew about what happened with GameStop to an extent. But now we pivot to an amazing interview with an amazing individual who I'm very, very happy we connected with Mr. Nick Bradley out in the UK, our first overseas guest. And what a guest he was. He is the host of the UK's number one, number one, you got that number one business podcast on iTunes and Spotify called Scale Up Your Business. We're coming for you, Nick. We're number 222 out in the UK. So <laughs> only another 221 to, to come at you. Um, you know, he's a world-renowned business growth and scale-up specialist. He dives into his um, his experience in private equity. We ask him some great questions about that. Venture capitalists. Awesome stuff. Go ahead, Len. Anything you got? Man, it's a valuable conversation with him. Good interview. Um, if you haven't checked out his stuff before, we'll make sure we have a link in the description here. Um, go check out his stuff and his content. He's, he's, I mean, the, what you said tone just kind of says it all. I don't really need to say much more. I mean, and, and we're more, I couldn't be more thankful to have built a relationship with him outside of the podcast in a more professional setting too. So it's been nice. Absolutely. Yeah. We continue to network him with him, uh, after that podcast as well. He's provided a lot of value for us and got some, uh, got us thinking a little bit about things and his podcast is amazing. I listen to it every week, every new issue that comes out. I'm subscribed to it. And there's only select few podcasts that I do listen to, and this is definitely one of them. So keep feeding your brain with that. Uh, Tell a friend about this podcast. And we love you guys. Hope you made money on GameStop and enjoy the Super Bowl. Well, I hope you enjoyed the Super Bowl because the Super Bowl already happened. And have a great day. All right. It is currently 1 p.m. on the East Coast, 6 p.m. in the UK. We got Nick Bradley, our first overseas interview here, a world-renowned business growth and scale-up specialist, the host of the UK's number one business podcast on iTunes and Spotify called Scale Up Your Business. Nick, thanks so much for making the time. Hey, Antonio. It's great to be here. Uh, It's very dark here in the UK. I have to say that's the problem with living this side of the world. It gets dark about 3 p.m., so really? this, this is a shining light of my evening doing this, uh, <laughs> this interview. <laughs> wow, we're honored. And yeah, I mean, around here, like 5 p.m. with the daylight savings time, same here. So it's, uh, but like you said, shed some light on this one. So I want to quickly just jump into, I just, I mean, host of UK's number one business podcast. I've seen you only been doing it for 12 months as, as podcasters ourselves. How did you grow your podcast so fast? 
Yeah, there's a couple of different things. I mean, it hit it hit number one in the um, the business charts on iTunes here in the UK, and it reached number seventeen in the business charts in the US. And it did that within about four months. And there's a couple of things to it. First and foremost, I called it something pretty simple. So scale up your business. If you want to grow and scale your business, this is what the podcast is about. So no one had to second guess that. And I do think there's a lot of power in naming and naming conventions. True. And then the other thing was I, I spent, this is, this is the funny part, right? I, I came up with the concept of doing it and then I procrastinated for about three or four months for lots of different reasons. And I finally kind of, you know, kicked myself and said, listen, go and do it. And I had a mentor who was helping me. And I, I kind of thought, you know what, I'm just going to go all in. So the first 25, 30 episodes is just me talking to a microphone for like 30, 40 minutes in a room and sharing my stories, all the different scars and successes and all the things that have happened in the world of business and the stuff I've done, which I'm sure we'll get into. And then the second thing I did, which I think really made it work was the podcast is about business. It's about growth. It's about creating wealth. It's about entrepreneurship and all those, those, those great things. But it's actually really about leadership and mindset. It's about how you have to show up your identity as a leader and, and how you lead yourself personally, which is going to make the biggest difference to the level of success that you achieve. And it's kind of, I don't, you know, scream about that. I don't shout about it. It's almost like a hidden thing that you find when you start listening to a few episodes. But a lot of people have given me feedback saying that that's, that's what makes it different because it's not just your run of the mill um, business show. Wow. Well, I appreciate you shedding light on that and I'm definitely excited to listen to it. So now, you know, it's called scale up your business, but how do you scale up your podcast? How, how'd you do it so quickly? Did you, did you market it? Are you using ads or just is word of mouth? The value is just that great that everyone needed to listen. I did a few separate things. I did a few separate things. So first thing I did, which was a little bit just testing it out is I've got, um, I'm, I'm a very big believer in leveraging and outsourcing. So I have um, a number of VAs. I've got 17 VAs in my, in my core businesses. I've got seven separate companies and I can explain all that later on. So what I did is um, I effectively had my VAs promoting episodes in relevant LinkedIn and Facebook groups. And they weren't going in there and posting. They were, they were engaging in the conversations and they were trying to add as much value into those quite large groups as possible off the back of effectively what is the scale up your business community. So they were extensions of my my mission and, and my message. And that worked really well because it was a very subtle way of doing things and it wasn't trying to sell anything. It was really just about spreading the message. So I did that. Uh, second thing we did is we started to get really precise about transcribes and, and putting them on our, we've changed websites now, but we used to basically have transcribes of all the episodes going up. And that helped with um, any SEO and any organic search that was going on. So that's where we start to get a little bit more technical. And then the third thing, which um, has worked really, really well, is you know similar to what we're talking about here, is, is is guesting on other people's shows where they have entrepreneurs who could learn something from what I've done, hopefully. And and that's been really powerful as well because my whole mission is to try and you know help people get to where they want to get to in both business and life. And so because I have, have these different vehicles, it means that those, those three different things have compounded, I believe. And after a while, you, you kind of forget the things that work and things just work. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so but, but I did do a number of things like that, which, which made it work fast. Really excited to implement some of those. We're definitely, we're, we're over here taking notes for sure. And- <laughs> Good, I'm glad I can help you guys. But you know, now, uh, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just say one last thing I think is important, and this is probably something that people forget is I, I, st- I didn't start the podcast in line with it becoming a business 
and and what it has done since. I did it because I wanted to balance some stuff in my life and I wanted to um, help people with with anything they're trying to achieve in their business because when I used to work in private equity, and we'll get into that, I, I was probably not doing enough of that. And then what I did is I created one person that I wanted to you know, make a difference to. So I have this very clear view of the of the entrepreneur who's got a, got a business, but it's not growing as quickly as they'd like. They might be plateaued. And every time I record an episode, every time I do something like this, I'm always thinking I want to help one person. And if I can help one person, then my job is done. Yes, sir. That's the that's the mentality we've been really trying to buy into. So it's never really like a job. You know, you're just coming out here and really just trying to bring value and expand your impact in the world. Exactly. So well said. And it comes back, you know, in so many ways. Mm -hmm. And you spoke about earlier, you you know, you talk about the scars and all the the, uh, successes and failures in your business. You mind shedding some light on that, on your business career, how it started, what types of business you were in and now where we're at now? Yeah, absolutely. And I'll I'll try and keep this as succinct as possible, but it's an interesting um, roller coaster journey in its own right, as, as entrepreneurship is, as I say. But um, I grew up in a little place called Adelaide, South Australia, which is right down the bottom of Australia. It's like a part of the part of the world that's very close to sort of the Arctic. <laughs> it's cold in winter, but then it gets really hot in summer. And it's famous for three things. Uh, churches. It's got like heaps of churches. It's got uh, really big great white sharks. In fact, a lot of uh, Jaws open water scenes, the Jaws the movie, were filmed in, in the, the waters of South Australia. And it's famous for serial killers. Like it's got, it's had more serial killer murders per head of population than any other sort of city in the world. So, as you can imagine, I wanted to get out of there pretty quickly. I actually remember before before you start. I remember actually listening to a podcast about these serial killers, and it was a broad generalization of serial killers around the world. And most of them were in that part of Australia, which is actually crazy. Yeah, it's, it's, it, you know what's funny? Like when I was growing up, there was there were weird things going on, but th- I don't think that necessarily, um, you know, indicated that I should leave. I mean, I I left for various reasons, but the reality is that if I started my first business when I was eighteen, it was a personal training business, so fitness business, um, and it was effectively early nineteen nineties. So I'm forty six now. And you got to you got to think back then. Personal training wasn't a thing, right? It was for the rich and famous. And what I was teaching really back then is what you would call CrossFit today, but I just called it, you know, training. <laughs> it didn't have any brand. And what happened is I, I made a huge network of people through that business because, as I said, it was rich people, it was doctors, it was lawyers, it was anyone who who could afford personal training as a luxury. And it just started to open my well, my eyes to this different world. And it, and it certainly opened my eyes to the world of connection and network. And anyway, I ended up selling that business after about two or three years. And I I moved to Sydney from Adelaide and I was I became the marketing manager of Men's Health magazine. So I'd studied a degree in marketing and business at university and I put that together with my fitness or my passion for fitness and I managed to land this amazing job. You know, I'm still quite a young guy. And and then I did something quite weird, right? I stayed in the world of corporate. As, as a kind of employee for 15 years. And I, I went up the ranks. You know, I got to senior management pretty quickly. I was a chief marketing officer of a, of a large company uh, just over the age of 30. I uh, got to travel the world. I ended up um, getting to um, becoming sort of an MD of various business units and things like that. But what ended up happening is I ended up getting super frustrated. I was making lots of money, but I realized that I was this uh, repressed entrepreneur 
living in this kind of world where I was just really pissing people off all the time because I was just too outspoken and too directional. And what do they say often? Entrepreneurs are unemployable. Well, I was I was pretty much unemployable. And I ended up going from that into the world of private equity. Now, private equity for people who don't understand or haven't understood um, what that is before, heard of that, it's where you have very high net worth individuals or institutions like pension funds putting money into a firm um, and that firm of, in, of investment bankers basically go and spend that money buying businesses that are not performing or are under leveraged. And the whole idea is you buy something for a certain amount of money and you triple or you know double or triple the price over a, uh, the evaluation, sorry, over a three to five year period. And so I went in as a turnaround specialist and I would go into businesses that weren't performing and I would totally restructure the things. And I managed to um, buy a few businesses through private equity, sell a heap of businesses through private equity. Um, I think at last count, it was 22 business acquisitions and, and sales. And the combined value of all of those was just over $5 billion over a 10-year span. Um, so, yeah, so that, that was the kind wow. of background. Um, corporate to private equity and, and now very much an entrepreneur doing all sorts of crazy things. So dive more into that private equity side. I'm super interested for for kind of selfish reasons. I know a lot of our listeners probably are too. I, I uh, that that world in itself and, and it feels private in a way. If it's the barrier of entry, feels like it's tough. So what was your experience with that? Just in a sense of of how does someone or how does one get into a private equity firm to work for them or to 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 get into the space that you were in? Yeah, I mean you bang on in terms of it. It's a bit of a private club, um, and I feel somewhat fortunate to have got some grounding in that, and it was partly by the um, the various opportunities that presented in my corporate world, which allowed me to move into that space. So the first business that, uh, in fact, it was it was when I was finishing with a big media business in um, the UK called EMAP, which was sold to a um, a private investor uh, called the Bauer Group, Bauer Media, and that was the first time I was involved in a proper business exit. And that business sold for just under, I think it was just under two billion pounds in 2008. And then from that, I went to Getty Images in New York, lived in New York for a while. And at that time, Getty Images was owned by a private equity firm. And I wasn't on the board, but I was kind of in the senior management below the board. And I, and I got a lot of access to the, the private equity investors, which were usually very smart MBA guys who were just, you know, really going in there and running the business um, based on a lot of numbers and spreadsheets. But I, I had a different approach to it, you see, because I used to come in there and I used to kind of bring the operational aspects. Like, you know, it's great that you can run this thing by numbers, but what about, you know, the precision of the sales and marketing effort? How about the quality of the people we're hiring? How are we managing their performance? How are we knowing if these things are actually working, which then obviously get measured through a spreadsheet? And so, so I, I just came into this and I just offered a different perspective. And eventually what happens is as soon as you start to get involved in these worlds, you start to build a reputation. And then literally, you know, deals are done in private members clubs all over the world with a very expensive bottle of wine. And you end up just working your way in. But what I will say is this. If anyone's watched um, Billions or, um, you know, Wall Street from back in the sort of 1990s, those sort of films... Yeah, the world uh, the world is is good. It's fun, but it can be very addictive, and it can become toxic very quickly. And by that, I mean you can sell your soul for money. I was going to say and, it's all driven behind money, right? 
it's changing now, and and I can talk about what it's like now. But certainly, when I was involved in it, um, you had every, everything's about they call it value, value creation, and I still focus on that now when I work with companies. But it was some of the decisions that were made to to create value would, you know, very much grade against my values and and certainly my my beliefs. Interesting. And I, I wanted to follow up with that too, because I'm always, you know, in the career path that, that Tony and I are in, in the financial services world, some of the folks that we talk to, they, the only, the only comparison or reference point they have is, is, are those movies, the Wall Streets of the world or the, you know, where you see these stockbrokers cold calling people and pitching them a, a shady stock or something like that. And how have you seen, you know, that evolve on the private equity side? And where is it today, if any? Yeah, it's not um, those sort of, obviously everything is sensationalized in the TV shows. Um, what I have seen is I've seen, um, you know, negotiations uh, for, you know, for very big sums of money turn into chairs being thrown into walls and out of windows and things. So I've seen, wow. <laughs> I've seen the emotion turn, I wouldn't say violence, but I've seen the passion of deal making. Um, I haven't personally been involved in anything what I would call um, illegal, like you see in something like Billions, but you, you can sort of see the motivations. And, and I'll tell you this, right? The reason that I do what I do now, which is very much work with entrepreneurs and founders who are looking to sell their business for eight to nine figures, normally within a three-year window, and, and quite often those sales are going to be to private equity. The reason I jumped over to the other side of the table was because I saw lots of founders with amazing businesses getting taken advantage of in terms of their own naivety around how the world of investment works. So they might know how to build a great product that solves a, a, a fantastic solution for their ideal customers and markets, but they don't know how to, to navigate the process of how they're going to get their return from, from that great idea in terms of their own wealth creation. So I, I jumped, jumped seats literally to be able to ride shotgun with those individuals. And as I've done that, a couple of other things have happened, which um, is the, the, the world of private equity is no longer being allowed to be just focused on money. And you start to hear concepts now like conscious capitalism and, and some of the more progressive private equity firms are actually now starting to look at investment from a, both a financial perspective but also from an impact perspective. And the reason that's happening, and I think this is great, this, this absolutely aligns with what I believe, is because um, the people who are putting the money into private equity firms are now demanding um, higher levels of visibility and higher levels of, um, let's call it awareness of what's going on. And there's this massive shift, I think, that you, know, you can do good through business, through investment. It's not just about making someone richer. And do you think that's a tribute to the advancement of technology and the world being able to kind of see and have transparency of what's going on in these businesses? Or do you think it's just an evolution of people really trying to make an impact rather than just filling their pockets? I think it's a combination, but I, 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 I'll sort of play around the last point you made because I think it's quite powerful in that respect, is that if you think about what's been happening, I'm not into the whole politics side, and I certainly can't comment about both of our countries in any way, shape, or form. However, you're starting to see the growth of significant business empires. You're starting to see businesses that have so much wealth and founders that have so much wealth that they they effectively could buy countries if that was a legal thing to do. They have more money than you know some of the GDPs of some countries. Mm -hmm. And I think there's good in that, right? Because what it means is there's a responsibility for those those massive empires 
to be able to make greater societal change. And so if you put that next to the fact that you're starting to see diversifications and divides between class, between wealth and, 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 you know, sort of poverty, I think that investors with money are starting to wake up to the fact that you actually need to do more than just, you know, make that, that wedge become bigger. And so that's why what I'm finding now in the, in the companies, I mean, I'm working with lots of companies that are in sort of clean tech and, and fintech, but each of them has a mission behind what they're doing versus just about, you know, the two founders or the founder is going to end up making tens of, if not hundreds of millions of, of dollars. Mm-hmm. So now, you know, this, this podcast has mostly younger entrepreneurs, people that are just getting out of high school or college and not people that wouldn't so-called be, have arrived yet, right? Not worth millions of dollars or even built a business yet. What's some advice that you have for the younger entrepreneurs who are just starting or are in the growth phase of their businesses? Yeah, it's for me, there's a few things that I, I, I've learned through the years, <laughs> which I probably didn't do in the beginning, which I wish I had done. And the first, first advice I say is, is always ask for help. Uh, don't think that whatever uh, background you've got or experience or education is going to be the thing that really gets you to where you, you want to get to. Um, it's sometimes said, stand on the shoulders of giants, which sounds a bit full on, but it's more the fact of when I've had really good mentors, if I've had really good people around me, um, that's always been the thing that's accelerated any growth or success that I've had. So that's the first thing. And the, the other thing I think is don't expect results just to happen. You know, this idea of um, the, what I call the culture of immediacy, you kind of expect things to happen quickly just because you read in the press that a young entrepreneur has sold his company for, you know, a billion dollars. The ones that, you know, stay with it and they iterate and they, they listen to the market and their customers, they pivot where they need to, they keep progress happening on a daily basis. They're not trying to smash it out the park, but they're nudging it along. It's, a, it's partly a process of attrition because what happens is most people, you know, in, in any form of business and life, they give up when things become difficult. So just being, you know, um, you know sustainable and gritty and having the fortitude to keep going on I honestly believe that's one of the um, of the most important characteristics of success. Let's talk about your podcast. Tell our guests about your podcast and, and that journey and what that's looked like. Yeah, so so what ended up happening, and I'll kind of give you the foundations of this. So I mentioned beforehand I, I, I kind of got to a point where I just didn't want to be in that sort of more, as I use the word, toxic world. And what effectively happened is I was closing some pretty big deals and I had, I wasn't, I wasn't feeling very well with my health and I wasn't showing up at home as a good husband or father. And it was just starting to, I was starting to drop um, principles and standards in my life that I'd set. And, and I knew that I wasn't living up to who I said I was you know, trying to be. And anyway, one night I had this incident, which I, um, I cracked all the teeth in the right side of my jaw, um, fell asleep, woke up, uh, about three, four in the morning, went to the bathroom in absolute agony. My face was swollen. I thought I'd been bitten by a spider or something. I didn't know what had happened, right? Um, but it was it was unbelievable. And took some medication, tried to get back to sleep, ended up going to the doctor, then the dentist, and they just said, yeah, you've, you've gone to sleep and you've, you've, you've bit down on your teeth. You've grinded your teeth so much for the last, whatever it was, few hours that you've cracked them. And it was a bit of, you know, it was the best gift I could have ever got, guys, because it was a massive wake up that my body was manifesting a degree of stress 
and fighting with, its, with itself based on me making decisions which weren't serving me. So the reason I tell you this part of the story is this was the impetus that got me to do what I'm doing now, and the start of that was the podcast. Because what I ended up doing is I caught up a mate who was very successful, you know, retired with a lot of money, but he wasn't so much that. He was very balanced. And, and I told him what had happened. And he said to me, he said, you need to get out of this. And, and he said to me, his advice to me was, he said, you know, have you heard of Tony Robbins? And I said, well, I've read his books, but I think he's an idiot. And uh, he said to me, well, listen, you've got to get yourself. In. <laughs> yeah, it was quite funny, actually. I, I, not that I was closed-minded. I just, I just kind of like, I don't know. At that point in time, it didn't matter what someone said to me. <laughs> you know, I was kind of in a certain Yeah. I wouldn't yeah. say the negative the negative feedback I hear sometimes with Tony is just like the 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 false like disingenuine uh positivity or something like that. So that's what I've heard from other people. Why yeah, they are that, distasteful think, of him. Yeah, and I had that opinion I think before I got involved in it. But there's a point I wouldn't call what I went through a breakdown. I mean, woe was me, you know, I had a million buck house and Porsches in the driveway. It's not like I was, you know, you know, on, on death's door or anything like that, or, you know, struck with no money. I mean, the point was though, I just wasn't living up to what I wanted to. And, and I think that if you don't address those things, when you start to feel them, and this is another watch out for all the young entrepreneurs listening is if you don't follow what you really want to do in life, it's going to get you at some point, right? It's going to hit you like it hit me or worse. It's going to hit Mm -hmm. you when you're 60 or 70 and you look back and have regret. So you're better off facing the fear you have now and trying to do something that you're passionate about than, you know, going through this kind of life of mediocrity. So, so I ended up going to a Tony Robbins event, right? I, I jumped on a plane to Chicago from the UK. It was about a month after I had the teeth incident and I sat in the room for four days and literally, I'll, I'll be honest, I started I cried my eyes out for a couple of them because not so much that, you know, it was, it was the emotive side because his events are like that, but there were things that he said in, in the detail of what he said, which connected with why I was feeling like I felt. And it came back to I was, I was acting like a bit of an ass and I was, it was all about me. It was all about my own status, how much money I could make. For, for whoever I was proving that to, I've got no idea, guys. But the point was I, didn't, I wasn't helping enough people. I wasn't making a difference in the world. I wasn't contributing to anything. It wasn't even on my radar. And so I came back and I thought, how can I make a difference? And that was the birth of the podcast. I thought, you know what? I'm going to go out there and I'm going to tell everything. And I do. My, I talk about everything on the podcast. And I'm, you know, I said, if I can help one person through my story, then it's going to balance all the things that I was feeling in terms of that imbalance beforehand. And the beauty of it, I mean, I don't want to speak for you, but it doesn't even take up too much time. You know, the, the, the passive impact created for it as opposed to the amount of time that it takes up is so far, it's so valuable, you know, just, just a recording an hour long podcast. I'm not sure how long your podcasts are, but you know, it doesn't, the way we run it, we're, we're, we're only doing a couple hours a week and the impact that we've made. So is, is so far greater than the time we've put in allows us to focus on other things while still trying to make an impact. Well, I've, I've now, there's two things that have happened since then. A, I've helped a lot of people and I get messages every, every day from people saying that, you know, certain messages are changing their perspective and therefore their lives. So that's that's fantastic. Um, I've managed to speak on stages now, virtual and live, which I never would have had the opportunity to do so. Um, and I've created, well, I effectively have, as I said, seven businesses now. Uh, three of those have been directly created from the podcast, and that wasn't the that wasn't the goal. Uh, but 
you know, eventually as it started to, to take shape and, and I started to um, speak to more interesting people. And one of the gifts, and you guys must have this, is you manage to have these conversations with people that you may not normally be able to speak to. And, and from that, exactly. you get opportunities. I mean, I, I've gone into partnership with a few people that have come on my podcast that I only met through the podcast. And now we've got business relationships and all sorts of things going on. And so those opportunities start to start to show up when you show up. And that's, right. that's you know, one of the great things about it. What I, what I was also curious about without being obviously invasive on, on your business model, your podcast, would you mind talking about folks out there wondering on how, on ways to monetize their podcast outside of just, you know, obviously there's a networking and relationship building aspect that I think is, is super important that I, that obviously you'd agree with, but could you talk about just the industry as a whole in regards to monetization? And, and there's a lot of, you know, uh, to leave names out, there's a lot of, uh, websites and places out there where you can sign up and let register your podcast and they'll offer affiliated marketing and things like that. Could you just talk about that side of things for a little bit for our guests to listen to? I know we have some podcast hosts that listen yeah, to our yeah, podcast as well. So I mean, happy to, and I'll, and I'll go into the three or four different areas that I sort of have looked at and, and made decisions on. Um, and I've said no to some and yes to others. I, th- I think the first part I would start off with is po- podcasting is simply a platform and my belief these days is it's a missed opportunity to not have a personal brand uh, that has a platform that it can communicate from. And it's, I wouldn't say, you know, using or leveraging social media for amplification is free marketing, but it's pretty close to it, particularly if your message is strong. And there's so many ways of getting your message to, to, to your community, to your audience. And so the first thing I say to people is if you're not prepared to put yourself out there. And it does, you know, it can be quite intimidating. You're missing a massive opportunity to both make impact and both build a business. So it starts with having a brand. And often I say, you've got to, how do you, how do you create a personal brand? Well, first and foremost, you've got to go deep into who you are, what matters to you, um, what you're good at, what you're not good at, what you can share with the world. And you start by creating that. And then from that, you, you start to own, if you like, um, a set of skills that you can then communicate. And then, then the second thing is you've got to be super clear on who your audience is. And I have one very specific um, avatar, like customer profile, if you like, or, or you know, person that I want to help. Um, and, and I marry those two things together. So that's the first piece. You've got to do that before you even think about a podcast. And whether you have a podcast or a YouTube channel or whatever else, the same principles apply. But then in terms of monetization, so one of the things people said to me when I started the podcast was, oh, you know, you're going to sell all this advertising. You know, you can do all this advertising and podcasts. And I was kind of always a bit, you know, think, well, that's not what I'm trying to do here. And so I've deliberately not run ads, even though I get approached to do so. And, and I haven't done sponsorships. It's not to say that I never would, but I don't think I'd ever sell out in that way. If I was going to do those things, it would have to fit my audience and fit my own values. I wouldn't, for example, run ads on something that I, don't, I wouldn't personally endorse, you know, or think is good. Um, most recently I've been approached by Blinkist and, um, they want me to kind of run some sponsorship for them. And I actually quite like the app because it's a, a way of leveraging the reading that we should all be doing. (laughs) So, so I'll probably start to do that, but that's one vehicle where I've, where I've managed to make, um, and we're closing in on a seven figure business off the back of this now is first and foremost, I get asked to coach and mentor people. Now I don't really call myself a coach, right. You know, in the traditional sense, but I have experience in business where I can mentor um, businesses, founders on a certain part of their scale-up journey. And I only work with um, a select number of clients and I only work on a minimum 12-month basis. 
So you can imagine what that feels like. And it's a very embedded partnership. Off the back of that, I have a number of different services that we provide. Everything from mergers and acquisitions. So how if you've got a company, how can you buy other companies and create scale that way? I have a marketing agency where a lot of the stuff that I do with my own social media, all the things that I experiment on, I also provide that as a service for my clients if they want that. Um, I've got um, other uh, people that in my network I've either met on the podcast or have been in my network who can go in there and do all the various areas, elements that you need in, in, in scale-up, be that financial management, be that you know operational um, change or digital transformation. So what I've created off the back of, of I suppose, the, the vehicle, the platform, is an ability for me to actually go in there and deliver the strategy and the operational plan, the services that underpin what I'm talking about on the podcast. I, I wouldn't call it consultancy because we don't trade time for money. We don't believe in that. We actually go in there and we gain share. So as much as we we, we have a retained fee to work with a, a company, we also take a percentage of the revenue that we drive over that first 12-month period. And then what happens? Yeah, it's, 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 we, it's, it's money where your mouth is, right? And then, and then this is the interesting piece. And we don't do this with everyone. Of course, we haven't got the capacity. But when we've worked with someone for a year, we also then either get invited to participate in equity in those companies because, as I said, the main thing we're trying to do is help that founder, help that team sell the business for eight to nine figures within that, that three-year window. So once we have equity in a business and that business sells, we get what's called a capital event, which effectively means we get you know a large sum of money at that point in time, which is very similar to the private equity model that I've been doing for the last decade anyway. So. That may that model may not work for every podcast, and it, and it obviously works well for what I'm doing. But as you can see, it's come organically from the fact that I'm actually helping people anyway. And what I've done is I've just listened to what they need, and I've provided help for that in a commercial way around that. That's amazing, man. And you know how the, the podcast is recently new, and you ha- you said you have about seven businesses that have scaled up. How has all this growth, how long has it taken to take place? Has it been over a 20-year period or is all, this, is all this massive growth extremely recent and compounded by all the work you did when you were younger? No, it's well, what it is, it's I, the way I like to define it is it's value that I'm now getting back for all the years that I, I put in years ago to, to learn this stuff. And, and I'm, now, I'm, now, I'm now more entrepreneurial in my approach. The, 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 gift, the gift that I got, I think, from going to that first Tony Robbins event was the the belief that actually I really am an entrepreneur and I was just a frustrated entrepreneur for all those years and I wasn't brave enough to step out and be in charge of my own income generation. You know, what I was doing back then, I had, you know, a massive salary in a private equity firm and, you know, kids in private school, a very good lifestyle. It's very hard to give that up. So what I did, and this is this is something I think is important for people to listen to, particularly if there's any entrepreneurs here or people who are currently employed and they're thinking they want to go and do their own thing. So, so I'll give you the time frame. It's now closing in on about three years, two and a half, three years since the Tony Robbins event. Okay, so I've had, I've had these businesses, and I've launched all these businesses in about a three-year window. This is what happened, though. I didn't leave the Tony Robbins event and quit my private equity job straight away. A lot of people find that there's a romantic ideal where, you know, you have this epiphany and all of a sudden you just throw it all away and you kind of, it's called burning the boats, right? What I did is I thought, no, I'm going to be more strategic than that. I'm not going to put my family at risk of no income for a year. So what I did is I, I spent a year, literally a year, 
building Scale Up Your Business while I was employed by the private equity firms. And I actually launched the podcast in that time. And I'll tell you what happened. This is the funny thing. I said to my wife, I said, the day that the private equity firm calls me in and says that you've got to stop doing the podcast is the day that I'm going to resign. So I made the decision to quit at the Tony Robbins event. The decision was made. I wasn't going back, but I was strategic in the execution. And eventually the podcast started taking off. I changed my LinkedIn profile. I had the Scale Up Your Business community on Facebook growing. And the, uh, the chairman of the business that I was working at the time pulled me in and said, Nick, you've got, to, you've got to stop the podcast. We're not happy. We think you're distracted, blah, blah, blah. And I quit. But what I had is I built the foundation already strategically over that time to launch these businesses with much more focus, precision, and attention after that. And just a personal question, feel free, you don't have to answer this. How long did it take you to regenerate the amount of income that you were making at the private equi- equity firm? That took 12 months. <laughs> that's that's insane. That's uh, 12 months, everyone listening is a very short amount of time to do that. And I mean, in terms of salary, let me, let me be super clear. Um, the bonuses that I got in private equity were very good. So let's be clear. I'm, I think I'm still working on those. <laughs> but in terms of, in terms of sustainability and, and this is now, you know, into six figures, uh, that was 12 months. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's the beauty of it is like, you know, you, you get a taste of the, you know, the extremely wealthy lifestyle, like you were saying, and you, you have all these things, kids in private school, Porsches in the driveway, things like that. And it's awesome. You, you, you hit your point of success. But then also, then I guess you start to realize that like freedom matters almost more than any of that. And, you know, that's, that's kind of the journey I'm on right now is I'm understanding that I don't want to work a job for the rest of my life. I want to have freedom. I want to be able to be with my kids and my family that is to come in the future and that requires a lot of legwork now. But if I can listen to guys like you and really implement all the strategies that you've done, then I can do it on a, a quicker level by really just learning from other people's mistakes. Yeah, and, and, and there's a lot of things you said in there which are kind of you know, worth, worth underlining. I didn't, first and foremost, I didn't do it by myself. I, I, I invested in having mentors around me. I was very... I was very precise in that period of time when I was getting paid and I was building the business. What I what I first did is I wrote a list. I wrote two lists actually on on a on my journal, and one list was personal development, and the other list was professional development. So under personal development, I, I got so much out of that first um, Tony Robbins intervention. I ended up doing every one of his programs. So you know the whole lot, and uh, the one that made the biggest impact was one called Date with Destiny, which is like six days where the, where it really gets you aligned with your with your purpose in life, and that was powerful. Um, so I did that, and then when I was building scale up your business, I thought, well, what are the components? You know, what do I need to learn? Where do I need to sharpen my professional skills? And then I just got mentors who were you know a few steps ahead of me. So that that was a bit of a leap of faith because I did have to invest some money. It wasn't crazy money. I mean, the return on that now is ten times, if not more. But that was the first thing I did. And the second thing I did is I got super productive with how I spent my time. You know, no social media unless it was, you know, business work, uh, really clear habits, you know, planning my week on a Sunday, making sure that I didn't go to sleep without making sure my plan for the day, the next day was absolutely rigorous and intentional. And what I managed to do is I managed to get what most people achieve in 12 months, achieved in three months, because I started to introduce this concept of a 90-day cadence. And, you know, it's probably worth another conversation because we get into that. But I, I just changed the way I did things and I brought everything closer. And so I wasn't wasting time. And a lot of people just waste time. They procrastinate. And I just didn't give myself 
uh, the opportunity to do that. I love it. I love it. And Nick, you know, as we wrap up here, how can our guests follow you in your journey? How can they listen to the podcast? And then also, uh, what would you like to leave them with? Yeah, sure. So, um, I mean, first and foremost, um, it's called Scale Up Your Business, but I do touch on entrepreneurship. And I think where some of the younger entrepreneurs here will get value is just in the stuff on mindset and goal setting and things like that. So I do two episodes a week. I do a 15 minutes to action every Monday, and then I do a an interview or a series of different interviews on Thursdays. So the first place is, you know, have a listen and see if, see if my message connects. Um, and then also I've got the Scale Up Your Business community on Facebook, which has got a few thousand people in it now. And and it's a really good community for, for people who are on that startup to scale up journey. So it's quite a broad community deliberately. So people can get me there. And they want to get to me personally, then I tend to hang out on LinkedIn a lot. You know, I try to get back to everyone as quickly as I can. It's a little bit more difficult these days, as people can appreciate, but I always go back to people. So if people want to send me a personal message and ask for any questions about stuff, then I always get back to them myself. So so that's where you can get me. Um, and in terms of a message, you know, I think what I said at the beginning um, uh, and throughout there, there's a theme to this conversation today. And that that theme is you really got to follow follow what you, you're passionate about in life. You've got to follow that. And and I think I don't think that I wasted 15 years in that corporate world because I learned so much. And you could argue that that allowed me to do what I'm doing now. But I also appreciate that I did lose some of my soul from the decisions that I was making. And and I think, you know, if you're young now, there's nothing stopping you from getting to sort of where I am now 15, 20 years before that. And, you know, time is one thing that we never get back. So, you know, you've always got to be appreciative and, and value value that time. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I say it so often on this podcast that, you know, it's great to listen to these things and consume so much information, but you have to go and implement it. So if you're young and you're at the, the crux of, you know, should I work a job just to start making quick money, but it's not really what I want to do, take action. Listen to the things Nick's is saying. Don't just listen to our podcast. Go listen to his as well. You know, this guy's got a lot more experience than we do, a lot. So go there, but really implement. Do something to take a step forward to get to where you want to be. We have time on our side for all the young people here. And even, I mean, you said you're 46. You still got a whole nother lifetime to live. So I think taking action is the... (laughs) What'd you say? So you got a whole nother career in front of me. (laughs) Absolutely, man. And so, I mean, once again, I appreciate you coming on. This was an amazing first uh, overseas interview. Thank you for taking the time. And uh, we're really excited that we connected with you. And really excited to keep on furthering this relationship. No, it's been great, guys. You know, your questions have been amazing. And um, as I said, if I've helped one person, you know, who listens to this, then my day is done. So I'm very grateful for that. So thanks a lot. Yep, absolutely. You have a great day, Nick. Thanks for tuning in to the Learn Lead Podcast, where you get to own your life. Stay tuned for our future guests coming soon. Make sure to like and subscribe.